Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer, and sometimes we can't help but ask, after all our advances in science, technology and medicine, why does the cure for cancer still elude us? And how can we prevent it in the first place? Why is there still confusion about the myriad of causes? Researchers are now turning to our genes to ask deeper questions about how cancer develops and how to fight it, by looking at the patterns in large samples of sequenced DNA and cancer cells. So I'm Peter Campbell. I I, uh, study cancer. I I sequence the genomes of cancer, which means I analyze the DNA that cancers have and try and identify what it is that makes that cancer behave in the way that it does. That's Peter Campbell, head of cancer, aging and somatic mutation at the Sanger Institute of Genomic Discovery. I'm Sean Grimman. I'm, I'm involved in trying to understand what makes cancers tick and trying to see if we can find Achilles heels in them to treat them better. And that's Sean Grimmond, Batali Chair in Cancer Medicine at the University of Melbourne's Centre for Cancer Research. Sean and Peter share their research experiences, hope, insights and discoveries with our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. So, gentlemen, how pervasive is cancer? Everyone knows someone that's had cancer. And decades ago, I remember it was a real hush-hush thing. Uh, People underwent quite... Um, severe treatments with lots of side effects and there was always the reoccurring nightmare. But today, there's a better chance of survival. So give us a picture of cancer in society today. Where are we? Cancer remains a very difficult disease and unfortunately a number of people will still die from it. In fact, you know, more than 30-40% of us will die of cancer and, you know, those people will still suffer with it. As you say, a huge number of people are actually going to be cured of their cancer and we are we are curing more people than we ever have before we're picking the cancers up earlier we're treating them better we have a wider range of therapies um and so we are making progress but it's it's slow and and it remains a very difficult and pressing challenge Sean include your story so look i think we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years that we have steadily got better with cancer overall. So we're now seeing that about 50% of people once diagnosed would live more than five years. Um, the, the grim reality is, is that for some cancers we do spectacularly well now, but there still are some that are that have, have been left behind, if you like, that our, our standard approaches really hasn't improved the outcomes for some patients, for some cancer types. So there are cancers and there are cancers. Which are the tricky cancers? In terms of the cancers that are trickiest, Uh, These are the ones that we would see the five-year survival being sort of 10% or less. Probably one of the best, uh, one of the most serious would be pancreatic cancer. Uh, Also brain cancers, lung cancers, uh, esophageal cancer uh, are quite poor. But we also have a wide number of very rare cancers where as they've been so uncommon, we don't have a good playbook on how to tackle them best. So they tend to have quite poor outcomes as well. I think to sort of follow up on that, one of the one of the interesting or the most difficult things that we've that we've struggled with is that we've gotten better at treating the first stages of cancer. So when we pick it up early, we can we can definitely cure it and uh, and you know, make a real impact on it. 
But if we pick it up too late and the cancers begin to spread around the uh, around the body, then pretty much for many of those cancers, uh, we, we don't have any viable solutions for, for curing it at that stage. And, and it remains probably the biggest challenge, I think, for, um, for cancer medicine at the moment is how do, we, how do we manage that process once the cancer has begun to spread or, or what we call metastasize around the body. What's changed over your time in studying cancer? Because both of you have been at it for a while. What have you seen change in diagnosis, in treatment and prevention? Shall we start with diagnosis? What's changed there? I think that what we've really seen uh, in the last decade is the steady increase in diagnoses which involve the DNA of a patient. We've known for many decades that cancer arises through the accumulation of damage to your DNA. And really the technologies by which we can make sense of that have gone from one little part of a gene at a time to one gene at a time to the possibility of looking, in fact, at at your entire genetic blueprint um, and where that technology is just hurtling forward at at a fantastic rate. Yeah, what what that... What those analyses have shown us is that cancer's not just one disease. In fact, even even within one tumor type, like breast cancer or pancreatic cancer, it's not one entity. Everybody has a different genetic makeup of, of the, each cancer's genetically different, and so we're able now to describe each person's cancer as opposed to each type of cancer. And then the idea, the hope, is that by understanding what is causing one person's cancer, we will be able to choose a therapy that is optimal for that person. So by understanding some of the changes in diagnosis and what's happening at the DNA level, how has this changed treatment of cancer over the years? We've seen, if you think about sort of 30, 40 years ago, there were a limited number of ways that we would look to tackle cancer. There were um, there were non-directed chemotherapies and there was radiation that may have been used. And what we've seen in, in recent years is the development of what we call targeted therapies. So these are going to be drugs that are specifically designed to target a, an altered protein um, which occurs due to a mutation within your, your cancer. And indeed, that particular mutant protein is not present in your normal cells. So it allows us to make a drug that should preferentially target the cancer. I think the other major advance in therapeutics at the moment that's generating a huge excitement is is in ways that we can harness the body's immune system to attack the cancer, and uh, and those drugs are you know having spectacular effects in in an, in a number of cancer types. We don't understand. You know, which patients are going to benefit. Um, we don't know really. We know at a kind of superficial level how they're working, but we'd love to know more at, at a deeper level about how the immune system is interacting with the cancer and why it, why the cancer survives the immune system in the first instance, but then we can tickle it up with some drugs and, and, and make a major impact on it. And on the topic of treatment, what about the recurrence of cancer? That also is a bit of a, a nightmare that hangs in the back of the minds of the cancer patient. Do we have a direction for trying to mitigate that recurrence? I have to say that at the moment, the way that, that we are treating cancers is, is relatively processive. And you will find that for many cancers that are prone to coming back, we tend to be vigilant and we look for that cancer and we might use imaging techniques or some other new technologies these days to try to catch them early. And then there needs to be a decision made on which drugs you might use. In some instances, that's following up on 
prior experience, they would use the same drug. Or in others, once it's come back and they think it's resistant, then they may think about changing to something else. I guess this is another example of where a molecular profiling of your tumour, not when it's first diagnosed, but once it comes back, can give you clues into whether you're going to be sensitive or resistant to the drugs that are available. Tell me about prevention. Surely the whole aspect of cancer needs to be clipped in the bud. So what are the efforts in research moving towards the prevention of cancers? Well, prevention of cancer, you know, no discussion about prevention of cancer can avoid smoking as the single biggest preventable risk factor for for cancer. We need to think about ways to prevent people starting smoking and to get them off uh, nicotine addiction once they have it. Uh, The second biggest cause that's potentially preventable is obesity. And we are sitting on a kind of rising wave of cancers that are going to emerge because of uh, because of the rising um, obesity problems in in the Western world. Um, We have no idea frankly, why obesity causes cancer. Uh, but the the data that it does is pretty much insurmountable. So we need to understand that at a biological level. We also need to know whether weight loss in that setting does reduce the risk of cancer. That's not known. Gee, that's hard to test, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I don't envy your research assistant. <laughs> Um, Sean, what about prevention? Tell us about prevention. Yeah, look, I think that we've certainly been seeing in recent years that um, cancers can be preventable. And there, I guess there's a couple of other examples there that we should flag. The first would be here in Australia, uh, certain exposure to the sun and the slip, slop, slap uh, campaigns here in Australia, which really have been world leading. We're actually seeing the incidence of those cancers dropping. And uh, as we continue to see more people going through and following that from our schools, Um, We hope to see that that will improve or prevent people from from contacting those skin cancers, which are all too common in Australia. The other two areas I'd really highlight would be the likes of uh, vaccination. So we've seen some, you know, Australia has pioneered the cervical cancer vaccine. Indeed, vaccines against the papillomavirus protect against a variety of cancers, not just cervical cancer, but also head and neck cancer. And indeed, we see here in Victoria forward-thinking views of where both boys and girls are being vaccinated going forward. And that stands to be a health benefit that we're already seeing internationally. We'll only continue to benefit from. I guess the, the, the next things for us is trying to see where else prevention may be possible. There is a lot of interest in looking at the possibility of uh, improving or minimising or preventing the likes of uh, colorectal cancer or some of those things. Um, there's been some very large studies going on here nationally now looking at the, the prospect of low-dose aspirin. Um, in respect to uh, prevention of colorectal cancer, and we're looking forward to seeing how that develops. Mm, some of my friends have to do the poo test. Indeed, indeed. Do it. Yes, everyone should. When, when that comes around, I'd yes, recommend it. it comes in a little envelope to it your does. house. With it a, does. With a little scoop and a bottle. That's it. That's I've it. seen it. Yes, I've done it. Most, <laughs> most proud. So um, from that, you can pick my demographic. Uh, I guess the final thing I'd say is that um, when when we think about uh prevention and cancer, cancer is still largely a disease of the elderly. And the good news is we're living longer. And the other good news is that um, we are not getting heart disease uh, and we're not not dying of some of those things that we died of in previous decades. And so as they've been steadily removed, we're seeing the prospect of cancers becoming more prevalent. Sean, tell me about your cancer atlas. You're working on cancer genomes and you're doing thousands of them. 
Yeah, indeed. So I guess the idea is that if we go through and we look, we understand, first of all, that, that someone's cancer arises through the accumulation of damage to the DNA. So you can imagine that as being like the hard drive in your computer. And we're going to look at the damage that has occurred to that hard drive to make, make the computer not work anymore. Effectively, what happens is that when we do that for a patient, we might find 5, 10, 15, 25,000 spots that have been damaged within their DNA. And as Peter and I know all too well, maybe one to four of those may be driving the disease. So, so understanding an individual by itself is very challenging. But if we actually take hundreds of people with the same sort of cancer and put that together, we ha have a variety of approaches whereby we can start to sort out the signal from the noise and in doing so, start to work out what are the, the steps towards driving a particular cancer type. And uh, indeed, the more you put together, the more insights we get. And there's been a very large international effort that both Peter and I have been involved in where we've been actively contributing this to ultimately the 50 most common cancers and most important cancers globally. So that's fantastic. You're getting all these genomes and you're doing essentially big data analysis and crunching the numbers and looking at the patterns and the, the, the rules, the exceptions, and as you say, the signal from the noise. That, that's exactly right. So we're looking, we're looking at those recurrent patterns within cancers and indeed looking at the commonalities and differences between them. So does that mean there'll be a day where um, if I am suspected of cancer, you'll actually be doing a genome test? Absolutely. I think that the, that, that, that's, the, that's the hope over the next five years that we will get to a stage where we will be sequencing everybody's cancer to identify those genetic changes. In many ways, the, the challenge for us in the next five to ten years is to work out how we can maximize the information that we learn from patients who are having treatment and, and uh, within the health system. There's always been a spirit within national health systems, both in Australia and, uh, and in the UK, um, of as part of that contract of the, of the state providing your health care that, that they can learn from that, that experience. And I think that as we think about how we can use genomic information, what we're going to need to do is, because everybody's cancer is subtly different, we need to we need to build up big knowledge banks of information about people and the particular genomes that their cancer have, and then relate that to what happened to those patients. You know, how did they respond to treatment? Were they cured? Did their disease come back again? And if we can build up those knowledge banks, then for the next person coming in to through the door into the hospital, we can compare their genome against this big knowledge bank. And then what we might be able to do is to say, well, based on this experience that we've built up, we think that this sort of treatment would be best for you. And these are your chances of doing well with it. What's been the most surprising element along your research adventures and your journey? What sort of caught you by surprise and made you go, wow, that is just amazing? Um, I think probably, if I had to think, there'd probably be two oh wow moments. Uh, the first would be while looking for a gene that predisposes some families, thankfully it's very rare, that predisposes families to uh, um, a variety of cancers, the pancreas, parathyroid and pituitary. I chased that gene for about seven years trying to find that. While looking for that, I accidentally found a gene that encodes a growth factor that makes blood vessels grow. And, uh, and so completely by accident came across something there where I realised that would have a lot of potential. So I ended up working on, on both of that in parallel. Showed me the power of serendipity in science. Um, and in fact, that's a molecule that's going towards efforts in that 
many decades later are now going towards clinical trials here with in, in an unrelated area right now. I have to say the other time that I, I really was, I guess, a bit swept away was when we completed our first Australian cancer patient where we sequenced their genetic blueprint and their cancer genome and were able to then start to say that, well, within this, we now understand that that should be the root causes and what other insights can we get from it. Peter, what surprises have you encountered along the way? I think probably my my most exciting time was was when I was a when I was a relatively junior scientist and we I was just taking up a position at the at the Sanger Institute and we had these machines that no one quite knew what they did and uh, and no one really knew whether they worked and and they said that they would sequence DNA and we said well why don't we sequence a cancer's DNA and and the data came out and you know the data is like it's enormous it's this kind of massive file of basically random letters and you have to kind of work with the computer to to analyze it and there were there were no tools for analyzing it you know this was we just got the all we got back from the machine was a series of letters and from that we had to we had to kind of work out what what to do with it and how to analyze it and uh, so there was a kind of a lot of as you might imagine false starts and and agonizing over it and then we would write a you know write a little computer program and it would take forever to do it because there was so much data but eventually we kind of worked out how to do it and, and the sense of excitement as, as, as out of this morass of confusing data, pictures and, and, and understanding emerged was, was truly extraordinary, a really exciting time. And I, that, that, that for me is, is the, the kind of magic of science. Do you find that some people have misconceptions about cancer or misconceptions about what you do? What are some of these misconceptions that you'd like to correct I think that the the one that I get probably most commonly asked by taxi drivers and, and things like that they're they're a great way to around the world they one of the most common can, uh, questions I get is why is cancer so hard and why haven't you cracked it yet uh, almost as if like we're not working particularly hard and just uh, taking our time we're in no hurry um, and I guess then trying to explain to people that you know that I think in some respects the scales have only really started to fall from our eyes in terms of understanding just how complicated cancer is and how any two patients can have far more differences between them than, than commonalities. And until we can understand that at an individual level, you're not going to conquer the disease for that person. Um, that's, a, that's a tough ask, but I wish that was one that was more readily understood by people. I would, I would agree with Sean. I think that the, uh, the, the, the biggest misconception is that cancer is one disease. And I think that really what makes it so challenging to, to treat is the fact that it's actually only subtly different from, from norm, normality, actually. You know, the, the, cancer, the cancer cells, they retain many of the features of the cells that they started out as, and they've, they've just subtly altered it. But, it, but the, that subtle alteration is enough for it to behave in a completely uh, destructive way. And unlike a bug, which is completely and utterly different to a human cell, a cancer is fundamentally a human cell. So any treatment that we, that we need to develop to hit the, hit the cancer has got a very narrow target window of abnormalities to go at because you've got this huge pool of normal cells that are basically very similar to the cancer cells. And so finding a treatment that picks out that specific abnormality in the cancer cell is very, very challenging. Now, gentlemen, let us into your inner circle of the laboratory. What were some of the antics that you're known for? Come on, let us into the inner circle. We want to know who you are. (laughs) 
probably my worst moment as a as a scientist was when I was giving a talk and um, and you have to, you give a talk at a, at a at a conference and there are questions afterwards and for some reason I given this talk and and this guy got up and he was like completely and utterly incensed by my talk and like was really rude and uh, and just kept taking you know taking me to task on various things that I'd said and and um, at the end of this questioning session he said well good luck or good luck with that in the most sarcastic tone imaginable and um, and I muttered something under my breath that was um, that was not very polite and then I was like beating myself up for having muttered this thing. And then my postdoc came up to me afterwards and said, "Oh, look, you really shouldn't have. You should really shouldn't have mouthed what you, you did." And then the uh, and then all the people around me said, "Oh, is that what you said? We thought you said thank you." <laughs> I was going, oh yeah, that's definitely what I said. Thank you. Awkward moment, Sean. Did you have a nickname in the lab? Oh, I think so. We're all far too busy being serious in the lab. I'm trying to think that the 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 lab that where I first started in um, in was actually in Armidale in in uh, in New South Wales, New South Wales, sort of halfway yeah. between Brisbane and in in Sydney, and it was the animal science laboratory. So um, that was a place that um, fantastic set of teachers there and, and researchers who really worked in complex genetics, um, which I think has stood me in good stead moving on. And trying to understand how they do animal breeding and some of those things, as we now work in very big populations in humans, I found out, I realised years later how valuable that was. Um, I think that we had some pretty cheeky times there in that, that set of labs. I do have very vivid memories of, uh, I have to say that OHNS probably wasn't as strict as it is these days. And I used to, as I was very studious, I would cook up lots of uh, spaghetti bolognese and freeze it in the the minus 80 freezer, so no one would nick it in the laboratory. Unfortunately, one of the researchers uh, had been to Indonesia and collected water buffalo samples, which were promptly confiscated by Aquis, and they took my week's worth of uh, a dinner at the same time. And I was marched down to the head of department to explain why I was keeping my dinner with, with a series of water buffalo samples that I knew nothing about. I can assure you now that uh, things are a lot stricter and a lot more sensible these days. Now... You've got the opportunity to take the mic, take the soapbox. I want you to profess, make a meme. Tell us what you'd like the public to think about next time they look at, I don't know, their lunch. This is your opportunity, fellas. Make us a meme. Science isn't linear. It happens by accident. It kind of bumps along, bumps backwards. Um, It really, it it isn't as kind of, clear cut and and full of breakthroughs as as we think it's it's you know a lot of uh, argument and uh, discussion and controversy and failed theories and that's the reality of science yeah it's a tricky one i've got a couple of things going through my head right now i mean i think in terms of where we are with science right now we have an unprecedented period where technology and and science is coming together and for some people, that's very, very scary. For some people, they're very keen to, to ignore it or deny it. Um, I would really in, encourage scientists and community uh, to embrace that because what we're seeing right now, certainly the types of advances that Peter and I have been involved in, in you know, even, even what we were talking about when we, we first started on this journey with the Cancer Atlases seven years ago, we would have thought what we're doing right now is, is almost science fiction, that we can now look at single cells and make sense of their genomes. I fully believe that within five years that, that a, a genome could be the cost of an X-ray. Between an X-ray and an MRI, it's going to really change the way 
we do everything, not just cancer, but also a whole pile of other things within our healthcare. Um, you know, change is good. We just have to work out how to embrace it, and we need to start to be proactive. In hindsight, when we're talking about this sort of the idea of genomics in healthcare, it isn't just about taking the guesswork out of chemo and giving you the what we think is going to be the best drug. You know, it's going to start to give us insights into maybe you're going to react very poorly to a particular drug that's available rather than get a very good response. We need to weigh both of those up in making a clinical decision. Um, there may be a predisposition in your family, and that's the reason why you have cancer. That actually will pop up from these studies too, and we have to work out how we make the, the most of that. So, And then when you think about it, this sort of approach won't just help with treating the cancer. It could treat, it could relate to the types of pain relief that you have and whether your genetics will make you prone to one or another. There's all sorts of aspects of clinical care that could be improved upon using this. We're just at the beginning of that road. Do I blow my ancestors for my cancer? I think I'd blow bad habits before I'd be blaming your ancestors for 95% of the population. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks to our guests, Peter Campbell from the Sanger Institute and Sean Grimmond from the University of Melbourne Centre for Cancer Research. And thanks to our reporter, Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on September 18, 2017. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour. Co-production by Dr. Andy Horvath and Claudia Hooper. Visit our sister podcast, Up Close, which features in-depth and long-form conversations with seasoned researchers across many fields. Check out the rest of the amazing content on the Pursuit website. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, drop us a little review. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.